Welcome to 1919 Radio's Black Geographies podcast series. My name is Mohammed and I'm your host. This four-part Black Geographies podcast series brings together four authors in the emerging field of Black Geographies to explore the conditions of Blackness across multiple spatial dimensions. Born out of the intersections of Black studies and geography, Black Geographies are defined by Catherine McKittrick as the subaltern and alternative geographic patterns alongside or beyond traditional geographies and amongst the terrain of struggle. The goal of this series is to bring radical ideas of race, space, and the politics of place out of academia and into our community and streets through an engaging and open access medium. Grounded in a politics of pan-Africanism and black struggle, as is everything 1919 does, the questions we ask seek to link the texts of these books to real-world material implications for black people and all African people around the world. The series begins with Dr. Rashad Shabazz introducing what it means to spatialize blackness and the links between carceral power and urban geography through a conversation on his 2015 book, Spatializing Blackness. In the second book episode, Dr. Brandy Summers joins us to discuss gentrification, neoliberalism, and the ways in which blackness is commodified and aestheticized through a discussion on her book, Black in Place. In the third episode, Dr. Simone Brown joins us to discuss her book, Dark Matters, which explores the origins of biometrics and the surveillance of blackness across time and place. And finally, Dr. Brian Jefferson closes off the series with a discussion on his book, Digitize and Punish, in which we examine the relationships between blackness, mass incarceration, and digital technologies. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Rashad Shabazz, professor at Arizona State University and author of Spatializing Blackness, Architectures of Confinement and Black Masculinity in Chicago. We have a wide-ranging discussion on his book, the relationship between mass incarceration and black urban geographies, carceral power and its origins, and what it means to spatialize blackness. Now, let's begin by welcoming Dr. Rashad Shabazz to the program. Can you begin by explaining what you mean by your term, spatializing blackness? What do you mean when you say the ways in which we as black people move through the cities is racialized and gendered? So spatializing blackness is, uh, is a term that examines the social and historical uh, and to a certain degree, cultural production that goes into situating black people in the places that they're located. And the, the, the reason for the term was to make it clear that black people didn't simply have autonomy in where they are where they have been and where they are located. In, in many cases, that has been determined for them by public policy, by violence, uh, for example. Um, and so to spatialize Blackness is to recognize that Blackness as a racial category, Blackness as a kind of historical phenomena, Blackness as a, as a kind of cultural and ontological form 
has been situated geographically in various locations in the Western world for, for reasons that are beyond uh, Black people's determination. You know, transatlantic slavery, for example, moved Black people all over the Western world. You know, the Americas, the Caribbean, um, you know, places like Brazil, for example. And, and that spatialization process was created by um, colonialism uh, and, the, and, the, and the slave trade. So as a geographer, what I wanted to do was to create a term to capture phenomena such as that. And in terms of you know, how black people move around cities and you know, why black people are located in cities uh, in the Western world, particularly in places like the US and Canada, has everything to do with that, that process of spatialization. And where black people are located in the cities is an extension of that. And the way in which they move around cities is, is very much based on uh, issues of race and gender uh, to the degree that for, for example, uh, when black men move in public space, being seen as the signifiers of danger and anxiety and violence by the broader white world means that black men can't just move around public space in ways that white men can, who are not seen as signifiers of violence, who are not seen uh, as, the, uh, as the sort of progenitors of, um, of, of fear. And so when black men move around public space, they have to do it, they do it highly conscious of their race and of their gender. And it means that they, um, it means that they don't, you know, physically bump up against certain people because of certain reasons. It means there are certain places that they simply just don't go because of what it can mean toward their safety. And so that kind of, those kind of, that kind of highly conscious uh, consciousness of one's race race and gender shapes how people move around physically, their mobility, where they go, how long they stay, the routes that they take to get there, whether it be, you know, public transportation, walking, a car. Uh, and it's that kind of high, that, that highly conscious reality that shapes the way in which Black people in general uh, and Black men in spe uh, specifically move around cities. Uh, what are the historical origins of carceral power? And can you provide a trajectory of how it shapes the urban landscape? Carceral power, um, it's, it's sort of modern formation uh, because, you know, we, could, we can look at, you know, for example, the, you know, the Greeks, you know, they had forms of containment and isolation where they were able to, you know, imprison people. Um, but it's modern formation really grows out of, transatlantic slavery and the, and the plantation system, um, those two mechanisms created a kind of historical and racialized attachment of blackness to containment. So whether we're talking about the belly of uh, a slave ship, uh, whether we're talking about the auction block or the plantation system, techniques and tactics, technologies, mechanisms of isolation and containment and immobilization were developed in and through transatlantic slavery, the auction block, plantation, you know, Jim Crow systems, 
Erg and so on and so forth. And so um, carceral power has this very deep connection with, with blackness. And as, as black people became rooted in the places they did because of this sort of spatializing blackness phenomena, you know, the Caribbean, various parts of the Americas, um, you know, towns like, um, you know, outside of Atlanta, you know, in various places where the, the plantation system was established. Carceral power reemerged in a different kind of format to isolate, contain, surveil Black people as enslaved people in the various parts of the Americas, the Caribbean. And then as the 20th century, you know, in the, in the aftermath of, um, of enslavement, when Black people in the early part of the 20th century fled the South because of its virulent racism um, and because of its economic uh, exploitation, and they moved to cities like Chicago, the, the, the logic of you know, black as the signifier of criminality, black as the signifier of dangerous and the specific way in which those things were attached to black men followed them. So when black men went to, when black people went to Philadelphia or when they went to Patterson, New Jersey, or when they went to you know, Harlem, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, those ways of seeing blackness as something that needs to be spatialized, isolated, contained, surveilled, followed them. And those carceral mechanisms crept into the innocent spaces of their lives. And they, they emerged as things like um, highway construction that ran through black communities that created barriers between black and white communities. They emerged as um, intensive policing mechanisms that were situated in the heart of black communities. They, they emerged as segregation uh, techniques that were built into housing, things like restrictive covenants or not getting access to lending. And so all of those mechanisms began to really congeal in the everyday places that black people live. And then when, the, when mass incarceration begins in the latter 60s and early 70s, those mechanisms had already in many ways been present in black communities throughout the, throughout the country and had been present in many ways in black life for generations and generations over historical periods from you know, transatlantic slave trade to plantation to migration and ghettoization. Those things had already been there and they were sort of congealed or reformatted in prisons in the 19, you know, really in the 1970s is when we start to see um, the explosion. Uh, what is the relationship between mass incarceration and the forms of architecture and urban planning that arose and took shape under its context? So, you know, as, as mass incarceration uh, emerges in the 1970s, you know, Black people have spent, you know, the 400 years they've been in this country up to that point, totally spatialized. They were here, they were kept there, they were isolated, they weren't allowed the kind of mobility that, uh, that white Americans had access to. And in, in, in organizing and containing them in, in places like the Black Belt on the south side of Chicago, that the, the, the evacuation of a, an industrial labor 
force, right? That, that all of a sudden the economy changes from being an economy that is kind of built on like working class uh, ethics and working class skill set to, you know, build iron ore or to, you know, lay roads or to, you know, build bridges, those, those kinds of, those kinds of skill set. It shifts uh, from being an industrial manufacturing labor force to, to one that is, is really based on um, a, different, a different set of skills and a different uh, level of education. It becomes more of a kind of service sector labor force. And that switch between industrial to service sector through millions of people out of the, out of the labor market, just, you know, just, just, you know, just sort of switched one day. And, you know, one day all these people, you know, worked in factories and I worked in good work at Goodyear or, you know, worked at Caterpillar or, you know, whatever, whatever the industry. And, you know, when the switch happens, those people just thrown out of work and they didn't really have a skill set that made them amenable to service sector labor. They didn't have education, they just didn't have background. And so they became superfluous, they became extra. And some of those people found new work in a new economy that started to emerge. And that was a sort of punishment economy or what we call today the prison industrial complex. Some of them became you know, judges and others became police officers, others became um, uh, POs or parole officers. Some of them worked in prisons, you know, and, and you know, many of them began to work in the new economies that were emerging as, de as, the, as the economy deindustrialized. And the rest of them, many of them poor and a significant number of them black and brown became the raw material for the building of those prisons. So they became the, the people who went into them, uh, who, were, who were contained, isolated, uh, and punished. And then states just simply started to throw more money into building prisons because it became a kind of economic sector, but it also held this important political cachet because most of the country, particularly white Americans, could get behind punishing black people and punishing poor people and punishing immigrants, right? They could get behind that as a kind of political project. Mm -hmm. And both, you know, people on the right and the left figured that out, that, oh, this is, this, this has some political cachet. Uh, so, you know, Democrat, Republican, you know, legislatures all over the nation threw their money into prisons at the expense of schools and public health and roads and, um, you know, parks and rec and, you know, all of the other things that, that make life sustainable and make life worth living. They threw it into the punishment industry and, and it just grew for 30 years, you know, from, from about 1971 until, you know, really we're talking about 2010, so 40 years. It just, you know, it grew and grew and grew. And because black people had been located in certain places and because drugs became, you know, enemy number one and, we, and the, the, the nation launched into this large decades long useless drug war and communities of color, particularly black and brown communities used drugs like all other communities 
those communities became the place where the drug war was fought. So it meant that the South Side of Chicago, you know, certain places in Harlem and Brooklyn, uh, certain places in Philadelphia, you know, Patterson, New Jersey, South Central Los Angeles, East and West Oakland, you know, all of these black and brown communities, that was where the war was fought. And it wasn't as if white people weren't using drugs. They were using drugs just as much, if not more. But black people, poor people, and people of color in general were seen as the signifiers of drug use. And because they were seen as less valuable, punishing them and destroying their communities and lives became something the vast majority of people in the nation could get behind. And so that spatialization project mixed with the changing economy against the backdrop of this sort of long history of seeing Black people as the signifiers of danger and the, uh, and the, the sort of domestic boogeymen and women, if you will, ignited this multi-decade-long punishment industry that, that placed Black lives really in the crosshairs. Uh, in your book, you describe the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated as having a second sight, enabling to them to bear witness to the quote-unquote uh, prisonization of non-prison spaces. How has the work of prison intellectuals like George Jackson influenced your analysis? Oh, significantly. You know, I, I do what I do today as a geographer because of their insights. And it was really reading people like George Jackson, um, and Asada Shakur and Mumi Abu-Jamal in the U.S. context, and also people in the South African context, like Govan Mbeki, Ruth First, and Nelson Mandela. The, the, it was really their insights that created this entire research trajectory that, that, I, that I did. And even though, you know, um, People like Michel Foucault, the French, uh, the French thinker, um, was really one of the first to write about this in the 70s. You know, he wrote about it in, in, in the way in which he writes about everything. It's this kind of genealogy, the moment in which these things emerge. And so he provided a really useful kind of conceptual framework. And he really helped me to recognize that, you know, something like this has been done before. But it was those black, those largely black imprisoned intellectuals that helped me to see what this meant for black people and how racism and white supremacy as a, uh, as, as a, as a kind of political reality, as a social reality, and also as a historical reality, how it was deeply spatialized, meaning that they helped me to see that how racism worked was a geographic phenomenon. And at the core of it was always about developing tools, mechanisms, technologies to isolate, contain, restrict, and immobilize Black people. And that's just a thread that runs through Black people's relationship with Western colonialism. It, it's at the, at the base of it, you know, of course, there's a sort of economic extraction. You know, there, there's also this sort of ideological work that goes into it to, to cast Black people as non-human or subhuman, and therefore um, subsequently 
justify the the exploitation that they face. But you know, you sort of strip all of that away. It's always a spatial phenomenon. It's it's always a spatial phenomenon. Slavery, plantation servitude, segregation, mass incarceration, you know, the kind of big four expressions of racism and white supremacy over the last, you know, 500 years have have been geographic at their core, just simply geographic. And the way in which historians, um, novelists, painters, filmmakers, sociologists, you know, whatever, talk about racism at the core of all of it, whether consciously acknowledging or, or not, is this spatial phenomenon. And so what you know, what the book does in general and what my work really tries to illustrate is that race makes place and place makes race. And racism is always in need of a spatial element to exercise its power. That's how it does it. That's, that is simply how it, how it does what it does. And, and so, you know, in looking at something like uh, mass incarceration, it's a spatial phenomenon, but the way in which black people became the center of that, that, uh, that racist public policy was also based on a spatial phenomenon. And so what I really am trying to do is to sort of connect these histories and really demonstrate how geography is crucial to the exercise of uh, racist power, uh, to the exercise of anti-blackness, and to, and as a result, to, to begin to develop strategies that are in and of themselves spatial to push back against those um, those those histories of, of racism and anti-blackness. My next question is, uh, how have the rebellions of last summer um, influenced your ideas of carceral power and spatializing blackness um, broadly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I would say it's 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 an it's an affirmation of of the work that I've been doing for for so many years and. And you know what all of the uh, what all of the the analysis from from Black Lives Matter, what they all recognize is you know something that's at the core of my work that black people are heavily policed, that we are heavily policed in part because we live under forms of segregation where we you know are either forced or choose to live together. And that black people in, in confronting the realities of police violence means that we just don't have the same kind of mobility and bodily autonomy that white Americans do. You know, walking while black, driving while black, jogging while black, sleeping while black. These are these are geographic realities. So it's about simply being black in a place, your bed or on the street becomes an opportunity for the state to deploy violence on, on black people 
oftentimes without any accountability. So I think what Black Lives Matter is, is saying when they say defund the police, one of the things that they're saying is that, you know, policing doesn't work and we need new strategies to address issues like, you know, um, you know, public safety and that the institution as it, you know, and the institution uh, is, is racist and it responds to black people in public as threats, as something that needs to be surveilled, contained, isolated, policed or punished. And, and so, you know, I really applaud and support uh, what, what BLM yeah, is, is doing. And, and, you know, if I had my sort of Corollas, I would just sort of, you know, add, ask them to, you know, in, in thinking about policing, for example, and I think it's correct that they focus on policing. By looking at policing, it allows them to kind of scale things up and to recognize that the problems embedded in policing vis-a-vis -vis Black people extend to things like housing and education and access to health care because it's simply about where Black people are located, adequate housing, adequate health care, and adequate education are evacuated from those places. Wherever Black people are, those things are evacuated. And that if we want Black people to be healthy, if we want Black people to live quality, long lives, then the places that Black people occupy need to be invested with quality health care, quality education, and quality housing. And again, those are that is a geographic question because it's simply about where Black people are located. And the logic is that where Black people are located, those, those kinds of um, productive elements are evacuated from that line, and what is invested is policing. And so we, you know, we have to, you know, we have to flip that on its head. And so what BLM is demonstrating is that where Black people are located, policing is a problem. And by, by attacking that and asking for that problem to be, to be uh, transformed or solved, it, it provides them a way of seeing what else is happening in the places that Black people are located that they can begin to address to, to, to affirm um, that Black Lives Matter and to provide material resources to make sure that they, that they matter and that, they, that, they, um, that they're able to live long, healthy, and meaningful lives. Uh, one striking moment from the urban rebellions of last year was when Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot ordered the bridges to be raised so protesters couldn't access the downtown. What does incidents like these, where the public architecture is effectively being deployed against its citizens, tell us about spatialized Blackness? And I guess, how do we contend with carceral power on the scale if we demand to live in a society organized around people instead of profit? Let me take the first part. Yeah, it was really you know disappointing that Lori Lightfoot um, did that. And I, you know, I think one of the things that she was thinking was you know, to make sure that there was no contestation between um, protesters and police. But it also is, is a sort of extension of you know, what, what I've been talking about, which is that, that, that public infrastructure 
um, gets used as a way to bracket, contain, to isolate, in this case, Black protests, right? And we've seen public infrastructure uh, in the forms of expressways and highways being used to isolate and contain Black people for generations. And so that is a really troubling, um, that's a really sort of troubling element that she is um, engaging with. So if, if we, you know, if we are really interested in dealing with carceral power, we have to recognize that, you know, and I think Foucault had it right, when you create something like this, you can't just simply deploy it in, you know, it's kind of like the genie is out of the bottle. Once you, you know, once you create something like this, uh, there's this, you know, movie from the 90s. Um, um, I, th I think it's called the, uh, it's about, uh, what's that prison in San Francisco? Um, the, uh, the Rock, it's called The Rock. And, you know, part of it had to do with this chemical weapon that the federal government created. And one of the characters said, look, when you create something like this, you you can't wrestle control of it. You you know it's 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 in the world now. When you create a like a chemical weapon, um, you can't be sort of strategic with it. It's out there. And when you you know carceral power, and and recognizing that you can use architecture and other tools to you know render people immobile, to punish them, to discipline them, to get them to behave in certain ways. You know, you just can't undo that. You, 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 you just can't sanction it in one place. And that is, that's been the, um, the lie that prisons tell us, that that kind of stuff only happens there. No, it's ubiquitous. It's all over Western societies. You know, when you walk, you're in Toronto, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when you when you walk down the street and in, in specifically in downtown Toronto, you're being recorded 400 times every step you take. And the kind of ubiquity of that surveillance that we see in, you know, totalitarian governments like China uh, or even sort of liberal cities like Toronto, that is an extent that that is an outgrowth of this sort of carceral power. So. I think in general, we have to recognize that, you know, that this sort of behemoth has been created, the genie is out of the bottle. And if we are really interested in, in racial justice, but if we're just sort of really interested in um, pluralist democratic society, then we have to really reevaluate our use of these technologies. So that's the first thing we have to do. And then we also have to recognize that if we're really interested in anti-racism and racial justice, we have to understand how these tools have been used against people of color and how they're continuing to be used against people of color. And, and from there, we have to develop strategies to, to decouple ourselves from the ubiquity of these kinds of techniques and technologies and to rethink what public safety means, because public safety is not recording the public when they're outside all the time. That's just not public safety. That's just a, it's a profound breach of privacy. It, it is a sort of, you know, big brother, very 1984, 
totalitarian kind of framework. Uh, and it doesn't produce safety. That's the thing. It, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't produce safety. But what we do know that produces safety is things like healthcare, education, public transportation, you know, access to meaningful um, wage labor. Those things really help in terms of public safety. And so, you know, I, I think really throughout the West, um, but particularly in places that have large communities of color, you know, I'm thinking, you know, obviously all throughout the United States, but, you know, Toronto, uh, Paris, London, you know, London has one of the largest camera systems in the world. I think second to, I think second to China, I think China has the biggest, but I think the, the UK, uh, you know, the, that system they have is the, is, is the second. We have to, you know, really ask ourselves, is this stuff working? If it is, then, you know, why are we still having these sort of issues around public safety? And what does public safety really mean? And how do we achieve that? Because the kind of um, carceral, the, the sort of large scale carceral approach has, is, is a waste of economic resources. It's a waste of human resources and it lulls us into believing that somehow the problem of public safety uh, has been uh, has been achieved and you know I think you know people like George Jackson and Sada Shakur they know that doing this doesn't doesn't help right you stick a person in a cage you surveil them for you know hours upon end we know that it that doesn't they know that that doesn't approach and so this is another reason why the voices of people who have been incarcerated should really be at the table and needs to be part of our public conversation about things like public safety because they have this second sight. They've experienced it and they know the, the, the negative implications that come from it and they can offer us ways to address public safety in ways that are not totalitarian, uh, invasive, uh, and racist. Uh, we're recording this just now, as just as the news breaks that uh, incarcerated Black Panther Party member Mumia Abu-Jamal has now contracted COVID-19. What relationships do you see between prisons and public health given this context? I know you touched on Mumia Abu-Jamal as an inspiration earlier, so I wanted to have a comment on what's going on right now. That is, um, that is really troubling to hear um, that it's that it's really horrible news. You know, this is another reason why prisons don't work because they have been, especially since the explosion of mass incarceration, uh, but even in earlier periods, they've been incubators for disease. They're designed to, you know, to isolate and contain as many people as possible. They are, they are designed uh, to move people um, in, in very particular ways and to sort of, you know, force them to walk this way as opposed to that way. They're not designed for things like airflow. They're not designed for 
what happens to all human beings, which is that we get sick, they're not designed to accommodate the reality of our lives. They're simply designed for punishment. And so if you create a place that is designed to punish, part of that punishment becomes something like disease. And American politicians know this. They're, they've been conscious of this since the explosion of the HIV AIDS 30 years ago. They knew it then. And they didn't care. They took no efforts to stem the tide. And now we have something like an airborne disease that can easily travel amongst people who are in close quarters. And so uh, it's not at all surprising, uh, but it's deeply unfortunate that Muya Abu Jamal has contracted um, COVID 19. Uh, you know, I, I really hope for a speedy recovery uh, for him. Uh, and really for all of the prisoners across the nation who, who've contracted it, we've had an, an epidemic of that here in Arizona where there's been numerous breakouts and you know, numerous prisoners have, uh, have died as a result of it. And so, you know, this is again why Black Lives Matter is so important because they recognize that policing is, you know, racist policing not only enables for Black people to confront the violence of police officers. But in many cases, actually in most cases, they have to confront jails and prisons. And those become incubators for violence. They stagnate people's lives. They, they, they are opportunities for trauma. And there are also um, incubators for disease. And so, if we are, if we're really interested in anti-racism, if we're really interested, if we really believe that Black Lives Matter, we have to fundamentally reevaluate our criminal justice system and really move away from prisons because they simply waste resources and lives. Yeah, we need to move all the way to full abolition. Absolutely. Uh, your book ends on a generative note where you discuss the forms of urban agriculture that's begun to appear in abandoned lots across the city. So my question is, how can urban agriculture contribute towards building an architecture of life in Chicago, but also in any city? So, you know, that, that ending, I, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to show first that, you know, despite all of the... Um, the, despite the way in which uh, blackness was spatialized in Chicago and despite the, the history of isolation and containment that continues to mark the city to this day, that Chicagoans and black Chicago were taking steps to transform that landscape into a kind of fertile ground, into a landscape that could produce productive, healthy subjects. And that, you know, the South Side just wasn't an island of containment, but that in and through that history that Black people were reconstituting themselves. They were, they were transforming their landscape. They were becoming architects of their own. Um, of, uh, they becoming architects, uh, creating a kind of self-determination for themselves. And so, so that was one of the reasons. And the second is that, you know, places like Chicago are just, 
epicenters for food insecurity. You know, whether we're talking about access to grocery stores or whether we're talking about high concentrations of, you know, high cholesterol, high fat, sugary foods, um, that, you know, this is another problem that spatialization has created. And so in, in trying to illuminate that other problem that comes from spatializing Blackness, I wanted to also show that, at least in this context, that Black people were creating ways of res resisting that, of, of, of transforming the landscape. And I think, you know, we can, there, there's evidence of this kind of thing happening all over the nation, whether it be from an agricultural standpoint, and that's one of the, actually the popular ones, the sort of you know, since I wrote, since I was doing the research and writing that, that book, this kind of stuff has just like exploded all over. Like in, in South Phoenix, which is, which is historically black and brown here, um, there's a huge like 20 acre lot in, uh, in South Phoenix that um, cultivates agriculture for the community. You know, and, you know, volunteers come out, and, you know, we work the land and, you know, you know, get the produce going and, you know, so it's, it, it's really, really taken off. Like I'm, I'm seeing it everywhere now. And, I, you know, I got graduate students who are working on that kind of stuff. Um, but, but in addition to sort of pushing back against the, the, um, the, the kind of food desert reality, it, it also shows that poor people, immigrants, black folks, can be geographers and that they can, they can be architects of a new kind of community and that, you know, they don't need to like, you know, rub elbows with people at City Hall. You know, they don't, they don't need to go to some, you know, wealthy developer and be like, can you do this? They can, you know, get some shovels and some dirt and a couple of hoes and some, you know, and some seeds and, and some water and start to really recreate their communities on their own terms. And so that, that to me is, is an important element of sort of re-spatializing Blackness, right? And, and it's a way in which Black people recognize, like, we've been here, we've been put here, we've been kept here, but we're going to make this place ours. Right, we're going to make this place ours, right? So we're going to have this kind of cultural life in the streets. We're going to have black businesses. You know, we're going to have you know a, a kind of um, a, a kind of black life in this place, and we're going to do things in this place that are good for us. And that is a vital element of creating healthy and sustainable black communities. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the, uh, I have one final question, um, mm -hmm. and it's touching on something you brought up a bit earlier about the ubiquitousness of surveillance nowadays. Uh, do you see that as going to be like a new terrain of contestation for us as Black people, uh, uh, like having to manage and deal with this idea of always being publicly surveilled, but also not just publicly surveilled, um, when we're, but also like our own skin colors uh, not being perfectly calibrated to the surveillance machines in the first place, creating all this insecurity and of fear. So I wanted to ask, like, is this going to be a new terrain of spatializing blackness? Yeah, so 
so um, a, a a geographer. Um, he is at the University of Illinois, and he recently published a book about the technological reach of carceral power. I think it's called digitize and punish. That's what it's called. Digitize and punish. And he is he is sort of is picking up where I leave off, and he you know whereas for me the 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 kind of cage if you will is about you know the sort of construction it's about architecture it's about urban planning you know it's about all of these mechanisms to isolate and contain in a physical way his work looks at the way in which digital phenomena that emerges in the 1970s as mass incarceration is growing um gang databases for example and you know, these sort of digital models that look at where crime happens. That for him is the sort of new cage. And, and so to answer your question, yes, I think, you know, looking, um, looking at black life is important because black people's lives reflect coming problems for the nation, for the hemisphere, and for the globe. Right? And that's really, that's one of the reasons that Black Lives Matter, because we're the kind of, um, if you will, um, our lives are the kind of uh, racial canaries in the mind. And whatever happens to us, happens to everybody else, you know, in this country right now, white people are dealing with mass incarceration in ways they never really had to deal with before because of the opioid crisis. And now, not surprisingly, white people in general and white politicians are starting to rethink, do we really need all these prisons? Do we really need to start sticking people in prison because they have substance issues? Well, you know, we've been saying that for like 50 years and nobody gave a shit because we were black people. But now that white people are getting caught up in it now, it's like, oh, you know, maybe we need to do something about this, right? And so I, the, the same is going to, you know, extends to technology. The same extends to, you know, the sort of broad scale surveillance that, you know, whatever happens to black people today, vis-a-vis -vis surveillance, vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, data accumulation um, or technologically, will be the case for everyone else in the society. And so it behooves us all to listen to Black people, to, to recognize it, that Black lives are valuable and important and should be, um, and should be uh, treated as such, and to also understand how Black people are experiencing whatever it is, poverty, economic instability, uh, health inequality, because those very things are gonna reach up and grab other people. And it's simply not about if, but instead it's just about where.